deed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, truly, or your Bible may say, verily, verily, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, our prayer is that you will speak clearly to us, um, that we will hear more from you than from me. Uh, Lord, that we will be challenged Uh, Lord, that we will fall more in love with you, or for perhaps some in this room will fall in love with you for the very first time. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, there are several things we're going to look at in here. Um, Behold the Lamb of God. We, we, We heard last week when we were looking at what John the Baptist said. Last week, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we talked about how that Lamb of God reference to someone who knows the Old Testament could mean any number of things because the Lamb sacrifice uh, is all throughout the Old Testament. There's all sorts of ideas that come in and out of the Old Testament of sacrifice of Lamb. We talked about maybe it was Abraham and Isaac and the story where Abraham has to take Isaac up on the mountain and God tells him to sacrifice his son and, and he, but Isaac asks on the way up, uh, hey, where's uh, the sacrifice? Um, and Abraham says, God will provide a lamb for his sacrifice. And, and so Abraham and Isaac get to the top of the mountain, and Abraham's about to sacrifice his son, and an angel stops him, and, and then there's a ram caught in the thicket, and they sacrifice that instead. Or maybe it's Passover, um, or maybe it's... Um, the, the cleansing rituals that you had to go to. If you were declared unclean and you had to kind of leave your village, leave your home, uh, you couldn't be around anybody. You had to announce unclean when anybody got around you. You were a social outcast while you were unclean and you had to go through these processes to become clean. And there was one level of process that, that declared you clean, but then there was a whole nother process of being clean enough to go back home. And that was the sacrifice of a lamb that takes away the sins of the world, and we talked about that. And, and, and so what we see here is, we see several times here uh, in the next day. Um, and so the day after that, um, we see John the Baptist hanging out with two of his disciples. We know from reading a little further, one of them is Andrew, Peter's brother. And we don't know who the other one is. Now, I have some ideas of who that is. I'm pretty sure it's actually the author of this gospel, John, the beloved one, uh, for several reasons. One, we don't see his calling anywhere else here in this gospel. And then two, uh, he has this habit of never calling himself by name throughout this entire thing that he writes. Um, And so it makes sense that this one person that he decides not to call by name might be him. Uh, So they're hanging out with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, the day before, had said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And again today they see Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't say he takes away the sins of the world, but he does say... Behold the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. The next day day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, 
And, and then we see something crazy happen here on, the, on, on this one. We see those two guys who were following John the Baptist. What do they do? They start following Jesus. Why? Well, because John the Baptist has told them, this is the Lamb of God. This is who takes away the sins of the world, not me. They were probably there, because if you go through all the next days, this is about day three in this whole thing, and if you go through all that, they were probably there when the the guys who came to investigate John the Baptist came and asked him, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Who are you? And he would always continually say, it even says triple, he gave a triple emphasis when they asked him if he was the Christ. It says he confessed but did not deny, but he confessed that he was not the Christ. And so day one of this series we hear and see here in John 1, John the Baptist very clearly says that he is not the sent one. He is not the Messiah. He is not the one that takes away the sins in the world. And the next day they see Jesus and he says, but this guy. That's the one that takes away the sins of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then the next day, they see him again, and he points again. A couple of things I want us to see in that is, is one, realize that when we're sharing Christ with our friends and our family, they're not always going to receive it the very first time we share it. And listen, it's your responsibility, as we're going to see here, to go to your friends and family. But you've got to be patient with it. You, you can't say, well, I told him the gospel once. My job is done. You continually point to Jesus in all that you do. But what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Well, one, we've got to count the cost. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33 says it like this. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man to be- began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, would not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now let's talk about this passage for just a minute and try to understand what's being said here. Because Jesus says something that's a little controversial in the beginning of this, doesn't he? He says, whoever does not hate his father, his mother, his brother, and his sisters. Now some of you may already have that down pat. You go, preacher, I got it, man. I, I hate them. I can't stand them done. I am a good Jesus follower. That's not exactly what Jesus is trying to talk about here. Uh, now, my sister's here today, and, and so now I grew up with three sisters, and the youngest of all three, still older than me, but the youngest of all three is here with me today with her family. And we got along pretty well most of our, our life growing up, but there was a short season there where we just could not stand each other. And, and some of you may feel that way about your family, and you may hear this and think, well, then, yeah, I've got that down. But what Jesus is really talking about here is, and it's, it's nuanced, and we have to understand, this was, one, not written in our language, 
and two, not written in our culture. Um, and that always has to be in mind when we read Scripture, especially when things seem strange to us when we read them. We've got to go, okay, perhaps there's something about the way this was originally written or the culture in which it was written that makes it make more sense, and we have to look into that. And, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but needless to say, the short point of it is what it, Jesus is saying here is your love and dedication for me here has to be so far above and beyond that of your loyalty to your family that it, it, it seems like hate in comparison. That your love has to be so far above and beyond what you have for others. Now understand, love for family in this culture was huge. Loyalty to family was huge. I come from a family that's very loyal. We may get at each other sometimes, but if you come at one of us, boy, you got a lot of us coming at you. And it was that sense of loyalty that Jesus is talking about. And he's saying, yes, you can be loyal to your family. You can love your family. Because if we look at all the rest of Scripture, we see that that's actually something Scripture tells us to do, is to love our family. But he's saying that cannot supersede. But then he goes on to give some other examples that were apropos to that culture of going to war or building a tower. And so for you, it could be anything. So think about it. Before you buy a brand new car, you weigh the cost, don't you? You look at it. You shop around. Before you were to buy a house, maybe, you would, you would shop around. You would look at it. You would try to figure out exactly what you need in a house and what it's going to cost you. Do you even have the money to, to pay for that house, right? You would have to figure out and work out your budget and count the cost and, and look ahead because if you don't, you end up in trouble, don't you? And Jesus is saying, just like you do in everything in your life, please don't take this lightly, is what Jesus is saying. Don't take this title of disciple to mean like I'm a state of Florida resident. It's not as simple as that. Or for me, it's not even as simple as I'm a steward. It's not as simple as, I'm, it's not even for me as simple as I'm going to go into ministry. Listen, he's saying, you've got to count the cost. This is wonderful. We read other scriptures and see that this is a, a, a thing that's worthy. And, and we see that it's incredibly worthy of our, of our devotion, of our life, of our time, of our energy. But still, nonetheless, we have to count the cost. We have to realize that when scripture says, for I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me, that this cost us our control. Listen, as a disciple of Christ, it's not like you add Jesus to your life, like a seasoning. As a disciple of Christ, it's you give him your life to do with what he pleases. It's not that he gets a vote, it's that he's in charge. And so we have to count the cost. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me here is what Jesus says, and we see it in, in what uh, Philip says to Nathaniel. They both say, come and see. Come and see. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I, I love this verse because what this verse points to me is that we are with our life to teach others. With our life, we are to teach others. With the way that we live, with the way that we approach life, with the way that we handle decisions, we are to be using that to verbally and non-verbally be teaching others. If someone were to just watch your life and know nothing about Christianity, but they were to shadow you for a week 
and not on Sunday, Monday through Saturday, if they were to just shadow you on Monday through Saturday and watch your life, what would they know about what it means to be a Christian? What would they interpret your life to mean of what it means to be a Christian? Come and see. Come and see. Now, a lot of times we like to use come and see as as our only evangelistic tactic. Come to my church and see this new preacher. Come to my church and see the worship music. Come to my church. Now listen, that is a great first step. But that is not evangelism. That is not sharing Christ with the lost. That is inviting them to church, which you should do, and is a great thing to do. But it is not in and of itself evangelism. Now come and see my life. And really letting someone into your life can be a great first step as well into evangelism. Hebrews 13, 7, to me, uh, shows us um, mentorship. It shows us discipleship. What it means is, is you watch leaders and you let them train you and you be trained by leaders and you as a leader train others. Frederick Nietzsche said this. Um, you may know Frederick Nietzsche, a uh, philosopher who is famous for saying God is dead. Um, did not believe in God. But one thing he said is, show me you are redeemed and I will believe in your Redeemer. Nietzsche's problem was that all the people that he encountered that claimed to be redeemed didn't seem any different than everyone else he knew. So it was hard for him to believe in this supernatural... See, he heard the weight of the statements when it meant what it means to be born again, what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. And he heard the weight of that statement, but yet he didn't see the evidence. And when he didn't see the evidence, it became hard for him to believe. And that's why he said God is dead. He said God is dead. And if you really read into what he said, he said God is dead because he was convinced that it had not affected his, his culture at the time at all. He said if you looked around and you, you don't see any evidence of God being at work. You see evidence of a bunch of selfish people and self-righteous people. And there's really no difference. This was Nietzsche's problem and I would venture to say probably many people's problem is that they don't see redeemed people. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to give yourself fully to Jesus. Fully. To hand the whole thing over. One of the questions that Jesus asked is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? He, he um, So, he noticed, what's, what's interesting, I love this story, is these guys are following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And so these other two guys start just following Jesus. Like, they don't say anything to Jesus. They don't tell him that they're following. They just kind of start following him. Like, literally following. Like, he's walking, and they're behind him. And so Jesus notices, obviously, and he goes, what, what, are, you, what are you seeking? What are you doing? What, why are you following me? What are you seeking? Well, a few questions I would ask you on that. One, one I love that Jesus says this, um, because we're all seeking for something. All of us is like, there's just this emptiness we have apart from Christ. And maybe we don't realize that it's Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well when he talks with the, uh, with the philosophers at Mars Hill. Uh, or, and, and he goes and, and he talks to them and, and, and he sees they have these statues for all these different gods, but then they've got one for an unknown God. And the reason they have that is they thought, maybe we missed something, right? 
Maybe let's come up with a God for everything we can come up with a God for. And they, they describe all these gods and have statues for all these gods. And then they kind of go, what if we missed one? Let's come up with a statue for an unknown God. And sure, he might be a little offended. We don't know his name, but we could still have something for him. And Paul uses this to point out that we're all looking for something and, and we're only going to find the fulfillment in Christ. So the questions I ask you simply are, where are you looking where is it that you look? And you go, well, I look to Christ. Well, here's how you know where you really look. When the world falls down around you, when you're having a bad year, not a bad month, not a bad week, not a bad day, when you're having a bad year, I mean things are just not going well, and it seems like you can't catch a break anywhere. Where do you go? Because that's what you're using to fulfill you. Wherever you go at that time, is it food? Is it a bottle? Is it a bottle of pills? Is it just inside of yourself? Is it, where, where do you go when the times hit hard? Now, this doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means you've gotten some things out of whack, perhaps. I know my own self, I just, I'm just being honest, and it sounds kind of funny, I'm not trying to be funny, food, man, I, I love food. And when I get super stressed out, overwhelmed, sometimes instead of running to Christ, I, I run to food. And it just, it feels good for a little while just to eat something that tastes good, man, bacon seems like it can cure anything. <laughs> you wrap a little bacon around a stick of cheese, man. That'll, that'll cure your ails and clog your heart. But it feels good, right? But we've got to be seeking Jesus. And, and listen, and understand when I say we've got to be seeking Jesus, I'm not saying that because you need to be an obedient Christian and you need to chase after Jesus. I'm saying that because Jesus is better than bacon wrapped around cheese. Jesus is better than that bottle that you're drinking. Jesus is better than those pills that you're taking. If you'll truly hand yourself to him, he literally is better. Better. Like there's nothing that can beat him. There's nothing that fulfills. There's nothing that reassures. There's nothing that reconciles. There's nothing that helps your esteem. There's nothing that builds you up. There's nothing that gives you confidence. There's nothing that heals your ails. There's nothing better than Jesus. Absolutely nothing better. And so we go for these mild little worldly things to solve our problems. And they're just not going to do it. They may for five minutes help, but Jesus is the everlasting hope. Where are you looking? What are you seeking? What are you doing? When times get hard, that's when sometimes we can have the sweetest times with Jesus. I've got a good friend going through an incredibly hard time in life right now, and I'm not going to give you the details, but just, I mean, just his world is falling apart. Everything that he loves and desires is is being taken away from him right now, it seems. But what's really cool is being able to watch him through this. Watch him chase Jesus through this. And he, listen, church family, he told me on the phone the other day, you know, Jimbo, I'm kind of enjoying it. I said, what do you mean? How in the world are you enjoying this? 
I mean, I, when I see he's calling, I'm kind of heartbroken. I'm like, this is going to be a depressing phone call. I don't want to answer the phone because I don't want it. It's so hard. But he told me it, with, with joy in his voice, in the midst of a horrible time, he said, Jimbo, I'm kind of enjoying it. Because, man, me and Jesus have had sweeter times than I've ever had in my life. Because he's seeking Jesus. Not as an instant fix, not as a quick fix to problems, but as his everything. Because Jesus is better than the things he's losing even. John 1.35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Where are you looking? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. John 1, 38, Jesus turned and said to them, following, uh, said, Jesus turned to them and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they, they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Um, C.S. Lewis tells a story about, uh, he says, what happens when we find what we're looking for and didn't think it would be there. This is perhaps like when you were a little kid and maybe you were, running around playing uh, cops and robbers, and you were, you were hiding from the bad man, the boogeyman, right? And you're, and you're hiding, and you're playing, and you're, and you're pretending, and then all of a sudden you hear footsteps, like how scary that would be, right? You're, as this kid, you're playing robbers, then you hear the footsteps, and, and the thing you weren't even, you know, you, you were pretending to look for really shows up. I think so often in life, we, we really don't realize how big this Christianity thing is, and sometimes we, we, we think we're looking for this, but we really don't really expect it to show up, right? Like we think, the preacher always talks about how great Jesus is, and the preacher always talks about how he could fulfill everything. And so, yeah, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'll ask him into my heart. I'll walk the aisle. I'll raise my hand. I'll repeat the prayer. I'll do it all. And, but then we don't really expect him to be our everything. And then out of nowhere, sometimes he just shows up in your life and becomes your everything. John 1.40, continuing. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the first thing that he does is he goes and tells his brother. Now, one thing that's fun about this is, is Andrew, what we know out of this is Andrew, really his only claim to fame, his identity, is being Peter's brother. And how do we know that? Well, because before Peter's name is changed to Peter, it says Andrew, Peter's brother. And so he's saying to the audience, like, I know you don't know who Andrew is, but you know who Peter is. What's his brother? And, and so... Maybe you struggle with that, that your, your identity, maybe you've always been overshadowed like my poor sister has for me. 
Um, no, she was the homecoming queen. I was always shadowed by, I was always the one in trouble. Um, but maybe you've always been overshadowed by someone or something, and, and, and maybe you feel insignificant in many ways. Um, well, what's cool is what God does with Andrew here. This seemingly insignificant, the only thing we know about him is that he's Peter's brothers. He's the one that goes to Peter and tells Peter about Jesus. That's pretty cool. Like the guy who led Billy Graham to Christ. I mean, maybe you won't get so much glory here, but there's plenty to come. So let's look at some of the disciples. Let's look at how they all handle the Messiah. Some descriptions of the disciples, starting with John the Baptist. Depictions of the disciples. So John the Baptist, we see here, um, in the beginning of John 1 and continuing here, he does a public proclamation. Now this is how some of you are going to be called to react, um, is a public proclamation. You know, the, the, the fear of public speaking is greater than the fear of death uh, by recent polls. And so that means that you're probably more scared to speak at a funeral than to have one. Um, the, and so for some of you, that's a really scary idea that you would have to do some sort of public proclamation of Christ. I've got some friends that just did a mission trip to Romania, and, and one of them was telling me about how the, the scariest thing for him was like out of nowhere, they were like, and this, this is not a guy who speaks publicly, doesn't enjoy that at all, and, uh, and they were like, hey, you're preaching tonight. He's like, What? Yeah, tonight. Tonight, huh? Okay, yeah. Well, I can figure that out. Well, sometimes you're going to be called to, to do that. Some of you, that's going to be the life that God calls you to, maybe, is to, to publicly proclaim like John the Baptist does. But what we can all do is what Andrew does. Andrew starts with his family. The very first thing Andrew does is he goes to his brother, and he tells his brother what he found as he found the Messiah, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus, and he said to him, and so Jesus talks with Peter. And so what does Peter do? Well, Jesus identifies Peter's potential. Jesus changes his name. He says, you will now be known as Cephas, uh, which means Peter. And, uh, and so but what that means is the rock. Now, is Peter the rock at first? No, he's anything but, right? Like Peter's, all right, let's remember, let's just kind of go through Peter's resume real quick. Um, okay, so Peter's the guy who, uh, first off, he does get one right. Uh, when Jesus says, so who do you say I am? He says, you are the son of God. And Jesus is like, man, that's awesome. Yes, yes. But then, uh, but then what happens? Jesus says, well, I'm going to have to die. And Peter goes, man, that ain't happening. We ain't letting that happen. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So if, if in one minute you get it right, but in the next minute Jesus calls you Satan, you, it probably didn't go so well. So this is the beginning of Peter here. And then, and then what do we have uh, continuing on with Peter? Well, when they do come to kill Jesus, Peter, maybe not that great of a swordsman, better fisherman maybe, uh, cuts off a dude's ear. And, uh, and so Jesus then has to rebuke. Like in the middle of getting arrested, Jesus is rebuking Peter, right? He's like, hold on, hold on. Puts the, puts the guy's ear back on. I love that he puts the guy's ear back on because I don't know why. I just find that that's got to be such a fascinating moment for the people arresting Jesus. When bumbling Peter cuts a guy's ear off, they're thinking it's about to get violent. And all of a sudden Jesus is like, just stop here. I'll put that back on there. And I put it on there in the first place. So, uh, And so then 
we see Peter with that. I mean, and then, and then once th- things really start to get hairy and people go, hey, aren't you that guy that was with Jesus? He's like, no, 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 really, I saw you. No, beep, no, I, you, you did not see me with Jesus. And it continues on. Yet, what happens later? Well, we read in Acts, once the Holy Spirit empowers Peter, that's when he becomes the rock. See, it's never on his own power. We have to remember this because we like to make, I like especially like to make fun of the disciples and how little they really got it while they were walking with Jesus, right? I mean, it seems like this whole time they just don't catch it. Like they're walking with Jesus and they just don't get it. Well, we have to remember they didn't have the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until Pentecost and then something massive changes in Peter, doesn't it? I mean, the guy's scared to even admit that he knows Jesus is the one that stands before thousands and boldly proclaims the gospel. So see, Peter's potential wasn't in himself, it was in the Holy Spirit. And the beautiful thing about that is we all have that same potential because we all get the same Holy Spirit. We don't get in certain degrees or doses. I don't have a larger dose of the Holy Spirit than you. I just have a microphone. That's it. And so we see Peter's potential. And then we see Philip and Nathaniel. Um, the thing with Philip, I love here, is, is Jesus just flat out invites him. Jesus just goes, hey, follow me. And Philip goes, let's do this. <laughs> and just starts following, right? Now, there's a lot, there's a lot to that, uh, more than we're seeing. The word follow me is a rabbinical call to a disciple. And so it was a, it, another day, I'll go into all that, but it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, that, that Jesus says here to Philip. But Philip, I mean, just, just jumps. And sometimes, man, some people are going to do that. Um, I, I never forget one day, I've told some people this story before, uh, at, at a church I was serving in New Orleans, one, this about w- one week or two, man, I was just, we were having to work on budgets and calendaring and, and all sorts of uh, administrative details, and man, it was bogging me down. If you get to know me well, you'll know that's not my sweet spot, administrative details. I've, I've grown a lot in that, but I, I get no joy at all from being behind a computer or working on a spreadsheet or a calendar or any, this is where I get my joy, uh, but you have to do those things. And so I was just so busy doing the administrative things, I just really got discouraged. I was like, man, God, I just need, I need something to happen here, man. And, and literally, like that day, a lady comes to the church, knocks on the door. I come and I answer the door, and this is what she says to me. I woke up today and decided that I would find God. Can you help me? Yes. Yes, I can. Absolutely. No problem. That's easy. And so sometimes, man, it's going to be as easy as that, um, that you're going to get opportunities like that. But listen, if you don't take the opportunity, then it's going to be wasted. See, we're all so scared when it comes to evangelism that, uh, man, what's going to happen? Is they're going to slam the door in my face? Are they going to cuss me out? Am I going to get rejected? Are they going to quit being friends with me? Are they going to quit talking to me? I'm going to tell you very, very, very few times in my life have I ever experienced anything like that. And I've I've shared Christ with probably over a thousand people or more. And, And only a couple of times. I can probably count on less than one hand how many times I've had something really negative happen to me. What will surprise you is how often people are just going to go, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. I'd I'd love to talk about that. If you approach it in the right way, people are a lot more open than you think and sometimes immediately open. But you got to be willing to share. 
And so Nathaniel, now this is my kind of guy. This is who I was. Nathaniel has questions. Nathaniel is a little bit skeptical of this whole deal. So Philip comes and tells him, I have found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, and he is the Messiah. So the first thing Nathaniel says, how could anything good come from Nazareth? So there's a couple of things with that. One, there's, there's a cultural distaste for Nazareth from him. He doesn't like Nazareth. He doesn't like Nazarenes. He doesn't like people from Nazareth. He doesn't want to be around them. And it, it's kind of his rival city, if you were. If there were football teams, they would hate each other, right? And, and so there's that tension. But then there's also Nathaniel is a student of God's word. And he knows that in the scriptures it says that where will the Messiah come from? Bethlehem. He doesn't say Nazareth. And so his question is, you can't tell me that the Messiah is there because he doesn't come from Nazareth. He comes from Bethlehem. Where when we study it, what we realize is that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but I grew up in South Mississippi, but my family is all from Arkansas. And so when you ask me where I'm from, sometimes it'll take me five minutes to tell you. Like, well, I'm kind of from Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, kind of that general area. But I spent most of my life in South Mississippi. But I was born in Shreveport. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. Now, there's a couple reasons I think Jesus did that, but we're going to not go into that this morning. So, that's the first question. So then, what does Philip answer? Does he go into that dissertation? And does he explain to Nathaniel? well, see, he was actually born in Bethlehem because of the whole census, and then, they, and then he grew up in Nazareth? No. What does he say? Just, just come and see, man. Just, just come and meet him. Just come and see. Now, here's what I love about that. Sometimes we have people that we want to share Christ with, and they're skeptical, and we go, and maybe you've shared Christ with them, and you're thinking, man, if I could just get them to church, let them experience some other people, that really honestly is a good step. It is a good step. And sometimes they're like, man, I'm not going to church. Just go, hey, man, just one Sunday. Just, just give me this one Sunday. Just come and see. Come check it out. And, and just tell me what you think afterwards. That's all you got to do. Just come and see. Listen, don't, you don't have to push people so hard. Now, the hard part is there is an urgency to this. There is an urgency, but they don't see the urgency. It'd be like if somebody were in a building on fire and you, were, you, know, you're, you come in with urgency and you got to get out, but for some reason they can't see the fire, right? And so for something, you're going to have to convince them. Maybe you got to put their hand on the flame. Maybe you got to help them smell the smoke, uh, but you got to help them see the urgency. And so when we, I think sometimes when we come across so hard with the urgency from the very beginning, they just quit listening. Because if you didn't see fire, and I don't know how this happens, it's a weird analogy, I know. But if you didn't see fire and somebody were trying to convince you the building were on fire, you would think they were crazy, wouldn't you? So Philip tells Nathaniel, man, just, just come and see. And so as he's coming, Jesus immediately calls him out by name and says, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. This is how Jesus describes Nathaniel. Now, what does he mean when he says that? A couple of things. He does mean that he is a true Israelite, but really, think about it. He's going back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And, and Jacob and Esau. And so you've got one brother, Jacob, who's basically, his name means uh, wrestles with God and cheats. So that's his name, is he cheats. Uh, and so it'd be like, hey, this is my brother, he cheats. 
And, and so and it's through deceit that he gets his birthright. And Jesus is basically telling Nathaniel, I know you. I already know you. And I know that there's no deceit in you. In other words, I know that you've got questions, and that's okay. And li- listen, as the pastor of the church, let me tell you very clearly, I know you may have questions about this whole thing. And that's okay. You, you can have questions. There's no question I'm scared of. Now, that doesn't mean I know the, all the answers. I certainly do not. But what it does mean is I know the God who does. And I'm thoroughly convinced that no matter what question we pursue and try to find the answer to, that when we find truth, it will be God's truth and it will point to God. I'm convinced of that. And so I'm not scared of any questions. So you are welcome to ask me any questions. And I may not know the answer, but I'll see what I can do to find them. So Nathaniel hears from Jesus. And so Nathaniel goes, so how do you know me then? So I have no deceit in me. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. But how do you know that? How do you know me? Well, Jesus says, before Philip came and got you, I saw you under the fig tree. And immediately Nathaniel reacts, you are the son of God. Now, how would, why does he react so strongly to that? Well, there are a couple of things that fig tree may mean. In the Old Testament, we see fig tree means uh, kind of your home, like your place, right? Your, your, it'd be your hammock under the fig tree in the backyard. Or just It's just you and your, it's, it's, it's your safe place, right? The fig tree. We see that kind of description several times throughout the Old Testament. So one thing that Jesus could mean here is, I've seen you when no one else has. And do you know that? That Jesus sees you when no one, where no one else does. And I've said it in here before. Who you are when no one's watching is who you really are. Who you are when no one's watching is who you really are. And Jesus says, I've seen you. And I know you, and I know that there's no deceit in you. You're not trying to pull anything over. You're truly trying to search out for God. And that may be part of the second meaning, because the other thing that we see in, in history, not as much in the Old Testament, but in, in Jewish history and culture at this time, is the fig tree is where a rabbi would send you to study the scriptures. And he would give you an assignment, and he would tell you, this is what I want you to look at, and look at in depth, and figure out the answer. And you go be alone with God under the fig tree. And only those who were trying to learn, only those that were inquisitive and really wanted to learn from a rabbi would do that. And they would go and they would try and try to learn from this rabbi. And the rabbi would give them an assignment and say, go sit under the fig tree, be alone with God and study. And so perhaps this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, I know that you're searching for me and you found me. The main point is, is Jesus knew what Nathaniel was doing because he's Jesus. He knows who you are. Now that can be a little bit scary. If, if you were to hook the computer up to my brain and play every bad thought I've ever had on the screen, I would move to Mexico. I, would not want, I don't want you to know the horrible thoughts I've had in my mind. And I would venture that if I did the same thing to you, and hooked a computer up to your brain and started playing the screen on playing it on the screen right now you would run out of here crying but Jesus says I know you 
I know everything about you. Not just the amount of hairs on your head, but I know the thoughts in your head. I know the questions in your mind. I know the struggles that you have. I know the evil thoughts you've had. I know the bad thoughts you've had. I know all the things that are wrong with you. And I love you. And I love you. Because that's who I am. Jesus is the Son of Man, as he says here in the end of this passage, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one through whom the creation was made and for whom the creation was made. He holds it in his right hand. And he says, I love you. I love you. So my challenges to you today are a few. One, if you are a child of God already and you've made that step, then count the cost. How are you being that disciple? How are you living that out? Are you, or is your reaction like these, immediate reaction of telling others? Have you noticed that? That all their reactions was, were to share to others or to publicly proclaim, to either share with someone one-on-one or to publicly proclaim who Jesus was. Their reaction wasn't just, thank you, pastor, I appreciate that. When they encountered Jesus, they had to let others know Are you letting others know by word and deed? And for those that haven't taken that step yet to become a child of God, what are you waiting for? Well, I'm waiting to have my questions answered. That's fine, but you're not going to get them all answered. Jesus is who he says he is. Trust him today. 